Welcome to the Crimson Thread. I'm John Behrens, pastor of Restoration Messianic Fellowship in the Boulder-Longmont area of northern Colorado. Our website is crimsonthread.com. This study was recorded during our normal Tuesday evening Bible study. Enjoy the study. So tonight we're going to start the book of Esther. And as we said a while back, we're about four to five weeks out from Purim. And Purim is obviously all about the book of Esther. I've been reading a book. It's called The Dawn. And it's by a gentleman named Yoram Hazoni. The entire book is on the book of Esther. And he goes through it and analyzes it. And I'm going to shamelessly steal his insights. So Esther is an interesting book. It's the only book in the Bible that doesn't mention God. It has periodically withstood attempts to remove it from the canon because most people think of it just as a storybook, basically. The rabbis of the time that the Talmud was written say that there are two books in the Bible that will never be removed. One is the Torah and the other one is Esther. So among the rabbis, it has a very, very high reputation and with good reason. The perspective I'm taking here is the one that Hazoni takes, which is basically this is a manual on how Jews survive during exile. So let's, let's start. It happened in the days of Ahasuerus, that Ahasuerus who reigned over 127 provinces from India to Nubia. In those days when King Ahasuerus occupied the royal throne in the fortress Shushan, on the third year of his reign, he gave a banquet for all the officers and courtiers, the administration of Persia and of Medea, the nobles and the governors of the province in his service. For no fewer than 180 days, he displayed the vast riches of his kingdom and the splendid glory of his majesty. Now, the first question that I would suggest you ask yourself is why does the book start here? What we'll find is that Esther and her cousin don't show up until the next chapter. In other words, this is all background about the Persian Empire and this particular king. What is it about this first chapter that's important to the rest of the book? First question I would suggest that you ask. And I will answer it for you. Because it tells us what the character and personality is of the king. And he's going to be one of the major protagonists. So this first chapter is going to give us insight into his personality, into his character, and into the way he governs. And all of those are going to be critical to the interplay that Esther and Mordecai have with him later. Because they're going to play off of what they know about this guy. So what the first part of this story is letting us in on is what do they know? All right, so the first thing is he's a young king. This banquet takes place in the third year of his reign. The second thing is the banquet lasts 180 days, six months. Now, he's got an empire that stretches from India to Ethiopia. So it goes all the way from India to Africa, basically. For six months, what he's done is he's taken all of the leadership of his empire out and had them come and attend a party for him. That's significant. Because if you're trying to run an empire of that magnitude, one would think that it probably takes some fairly close attention to make sure that you, know, you don't have Huns on the border and that things are going well and taxes are being collected and all that kind of stuff. 
So for him to basically bring the top leadership of the entire empire in there and get them liquored up for six months says something about him. So the first thing this thing tells you is the guy is greedy for recognition and attention. In other words, he wants everybody to say, Ooh, wow, look at you, king. Look how generous you are. Throwing this big party and everybody's having all they want to drink and all, all they want to eat. And you're able to do it for six months. Of course, you're not doing it on your own dime. You're using imperial funds to do this. But the whole point is, look at me. And he is so intent on that that he's willing to basically leave the running of the empire for six months to the second string. Maybe fine or it may not. Well, it actually turns out to be okay because the next incident where we have the marriage with Esther is four years from now. So he lasts at least seven years. So this incident after the first three doesn't seem to harm the empire, but it does tell us something about him. The comment was that bringing everybody into town and throwing a party and meeting them tells you a number of things. First of all, if you get to meet them all personally, which is, which is valuable. And second, if somebody's province comes apart while he's gone for six months, that tells you something about his administration. Sazoni's point that bringing all these people in for six months, instead of figuring out what you're going to do about those rascally Greeks and so forth, is an indicator of his personality. Let's go on and, I'll sh- and we'll do a little more. Uh, now down to verse 4. For no fewer than 180 days he displayed the vast riches of his kingdom and the splendid glory of his majesty. At the end of the period, the king gave a banquet for seven days in the court of the king's palace garden for all the people who lived in the fortress Shushan, high and low alike. So what he does at the end of the six months is he throws the whole place open to everybody in town. And what says high and low alike, it means everybody in town. And, and I'm suggesting, as, as does Hazoni, that this is a further indication. I mean, all the, all the points you all made, that there are things that you could gain from something like this, you can gain it by bringing them in one or two at a time for a month. But to just amass everybody at once smacks of narcissism. I'm in verse 6. There were hangings of white cotton and blue wool, caught up by cords of fine linen and purple, wool to silver rods, alabaster columns, and there were couches of gold and silver on a pavement of marble, alabaster, mother of pearl, and mosaics. Royal wine was served in abundance, as befits a king, in royal beakers, beakers of varied design, and the rule for the drinking was no restrictions. For the king had given orders to every palace steward to comply with each man's wishes, in addition, Queen Vashti gave a banquet for women in the royal palace of the king Ahasuerus. So he brings everybody in, and the key here is when you come in and drink the king's wine, he has to give an order that you can say, I've had enough. Do you understand what I just said? Because when you get invited into the king's presence and the king pours you a glass of wine, you drink the wine. And so if you are displaying your wealth, and your excess, and you have people going around continually filling the wine cups because you want to show just how wealthy and generous and powerful you are, if you can't say stop without incurring the king's displeasure, then you're going to have people drink themselves to death. And the fact that he has to give orders saying 
it's okay not to drink is also indicative. What it indicates is without those instructions, they would. Again, did I say that's what made sense? And furthermore, if it makes the book that, hey, he told everybody you don't have to drink if you don't want to. The fact that he has to tell them that and the fact that it makes the book, again, tells you something about the way he runs his court. There's a story from the Soviet era, and Brian can probably tell it better than I can. In Soviet Russia, there was a, uh, an event, and Stalin was mentioned, and everybody starts clapping. And nobody dared to be the first to stop clapping. And the first one who actually did stop clapping got hauled off by the secret police. I don't know what was actually became of him. He may have just been chastised or, I, or may have been more severe. But the point is, in a despotism like that, things like this matter a great deal to your survival. So if the king has to tell his servants, if someone doesn't want to drink anymore, it's okay, tells you something about the regime and the court. Furthermore, such an instruction is interesting because what it does is it gives the guests a small measure of freedom. And giving the guest a small measure of freedom inside of a dictatorship can go a long way to building personal loyalty. In other words, something small like that in that kind of a regime says volumes to the one who can do it. It's a good way to buy loyalty. You take away all the freedom they've got, and then you give them back this one little freedom. You don't have to drink if you don't want to. Oh, wow. That's really great. You understand what I'm saying? It's human, human nature. I'm now in verse 10. Now on the seventh day, when the king was merry with wine, he ordered Mehuman, Bizetha, Harbona, Bigtha, Abogtha, Zethar, and Carcass, the seven eunuchs in attendance on King Ahasuerus, to bring Queen Vashti before the king wearing a royal diadem, to display her beauty to the people and the officials, for she was a beautiful woman. But Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command, conveyed by the eunuchs. The king was greatly incensed, and his fury burned within him. All right, now this sets up the rest of the book. What it tells you is what his relationship is with his wife. And it also tells you what his attitude is towards women. So when he's got this big party going and everybody's drunk and all that kind of stuff and feeling good and mellow, and what he wants to do is show, remember what he's been showing all along? He's been showing his generosity. He's been showing the richness of his palace. You know, he's been serving him in fine uh, goblets and so forth. Well, Vashti is just another vessel for the king's use to be displayed to aggrandize him. That's what that vignette says. My wife over here is like one of the paintings on the wall, one of the alabaster vessels, one of the, you know, she's just another one of my possessions, and wow, look how beautiful she is, aren't I great? That's the attitude. And again, this tells us something because when we get to the beauty contest that happens in a couple chapters, you can refer back here and you can see what his attitude is toward his wife. I mean, clearly they are not soulmates. He regards her as simply another of his possessions. Of course, at this point, he is more than just a little bit ticked. And then he does something actually kind of brilliant. He has now been snubbed in front of everybody at the party. And what he does is he does a lateral arabesque and he turns it into an affair of state. In other words, he elevates a marital spat to 
level of imperial business. Verse 13, Then the king consulted the sages, learned in procedure, for it was a royal palace, to turn to all who were versed in law and precedent. His closest advisor were Karshena, Shethar, Admatha, Tarshish, Merish, Mersena, and Memokan, the seven ministers of Persia and Medea, who had access to the royal presence and occupied the first place in the kingdom. What, he asked, shall be done according to the law to Queen Vashti for failing to obey the command of King Ahasuerus conveyed by the eunuchs? Now notice how that's stated. What he says is, all you learned doctors of the law, when the king sends an order to this woman and she doesn't obey, what should be done in that circumstance? Notice what he's done. It's not, dang, go get my wife and drag her in here by the hair if you need to. That's a marital spat. This is, all right, lawyers, I'm the king. I gave a command to the queen. What should be done when the queen doesn't obey the command of the king? And now it's an affair of state. It's actually brilliant on his part. See, because he has spent six months trying to puff himself up, aggrandize himself. And what he's indicated here is in his most personal relationship, he's a failure. And he has to resort to the machinery of state to solve this. I will suggest that that probably also goes with the people who are governing his realm. He is not good at relationships other than power relationships. He, he turns out to be, well actually he doesn't even turn out to be fairly adept at those, but we'll get that, that's for later on in the book. But again, I, I'm suggesting to you he's not trying to buy favor with this lavish party. What he's, he is already in command. He's got the Persian army. He's got the empire. If one of his provinces doesn't do what he wants to do, he'll whistle up a couple of squadrons of Persian cavalry and go straighten them out. What he's trying to do is build himself up as a demigod. In other words, I am really, 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 really great. Look at my generosity. Look at the wealth I have. Look at the party I can throw. Me, 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 me. I'm suggesting that's what's going on. What he does is he elevates what should be a family spat. And quite frankly, Vashti has handled this poorly also you would think that she would be bright enough to know that the last thing that you want to do is insult the emperor in front of his entire staff. In other words, regardless of what she thinks of him, this is not a good career move as it turns out. But as I say, the king then lifts it to the level of imperial business. 16. Therefore, Memacon declared in the presence of the king and the ministers, Queen Vashti has committed an offense not only against your majesty, but also against all the officials and against all the peoples and all the provinces of King Ahasuerus. For the queen's behavior will make all wives despise their husband, as they reflect that King Ahasuerus himself ordered Queen Vashti to be brought before him, but she would not come. This very day, the ladies of Persia and Medea, who have heard of the queen's behavior, will cite it to their your majesty's officials, and there will be no end of scorn and provocation. So see what's, what's happened here? A domestic spat has now been elevated to law, and he is now not a husband who can't command the loyalty of his wife. 
he is now standing up against a woman who has been pumped full of feminists, you know what? And we have got to stop this, and it's no longer his personal failure, the failure is now on her. The king has now become a hero instead of someone who gets stiffed by his wife. That's what the king is trying to set up, and then his minister reciprocates and does just exactly what's needed in this circumstance. So instead of losing face by all of this, the king now shows up as being yet even more powerful and more wise. You see what's happened? Verse 19. If it please your majesty, let a royal edict be issued by you, and let it be written into the laws of Persia and Medea, so that it cannot be abrogated, that Vashti shall never enter the presence of King Ahasuerus, and let her majesty bestow her royal state upon another who is more worthy than she, then will the judgment executed by your majesty resound throughout all your realm. Vast though it is, and all wives will treat their husbands with respect, high and low alike. So what's now happened is she has been stripped of her title. She has been stripped of all her possessions. And one could assume that as the queen, she probably had a fairly large estate. Furthermore, she is in a position as the former wife of the king where she can't remarry. She's basically been reduced to nothing by this decree. And we'll see that that pattern also continues. Yeah, the comment was that this is also where it's set up that a royal decree cannot be abrogated. And again, we'll know that that will show up later also. Verse 21. The proposal was approved by the king and the ministers, and the king did as Memucan proposed. Dispatches were sent to all the provinces of the king, to every province in its own script, and to every nation in its own language, that every man should wield authority in his home and speak the language of his own people. So we're going to see this process happen again too, where the method of promulgating a royal decree is it goes out to every province and it's recorded in the language of that province where it's sent. So, and we'll see that again in, in a minute. Verse 2. Sometime afterward, when the anger of King Ahasuerus subsided, he thought of Vashti and what he had done and what had been decreed against her. The point of the matter is, men and women are designed to be together. He doesn't have a helpmeet anymore. And one of the things that's going to happen as we get a little further along, is he's going to set up basically a system of legalized rape where he's going to bring sequential naive young girls in, spend a night with them, and shuffle them off to the harem and never see them again. Now, they will not be able to marry. So if they don't please the king, they simply get shot off to the women's quarters and there they stay for the rest of their lives. And what the so-called beauty contest is, is nothing besides a system of legalized rape. One of the things that's going to happen during that process is he is going to discover that an endless parade of beautiful bimbos gets really boring after a while. And what you really want is a stable relationship with a wife. And as I say, an endless stream of poppets coming through your bedroom does not satisfy that need. So what he's seeing here is, in chapter 2, he's starting to recognize, wait a minute, I may be able to get all the young ladies that I want, but that isn't the same as having a wife. 
So the king's servants who attended him said, let beautiful young virgins be brought out for your majesty. Let your majesty appoint officers in every province of your realm to assemble all the beautiful young virgins of the fortress of Shushan in the harem under the supervision of Hege, the king's eunuch, guardian of the women. Let them be provided with their cosmetics and let the maiden who pleases your majesty be queen instead of Vashti. The proposal pleased the king and he acted upon it. Now, one of the things you should notice by now the king has never initiated anything. He's the king, but he's always reacting to suggestions and advice of his ministers. Throughout the book, he never takes any initiative of his own. He is always reacting to somebody. What's happening here then is the king has set up the Playboy Bunny Mansion. No, that's literally what it is. Basically, you're, you're getting teenage girls who are typically not very sophisticated. They're decorative. They're going to run them in and rape them one at a time. And then once you're done, they go off into the women's quarters and are never seen again unless the king happens to want to see one of them a second time. But that's for the rest of their lives. As I say, he's setting up the Playboy Bunny Mansion here. And he's being Hugh Hefner. Most people who read this sort of think of the romance of castles and knights and chivalry and the beautiful young girl getting a knight with the king and all that. This is not. This is grim. This is really ugly stuff. Again, it tells you something about his character and his attitude both towards women and toward his subjects that he would do something like this. Verse 5. In the fortress of Shushan lived a Jew by the name of Mordecai, son of Yair, son of Shimei, son of Kish, a Benjaminite. He is a relation to King Saul. Remember, Saul is a son of Kish. This is, by the way, the first time that Mordecai shows us. All of this other stuff that's happened is prologue. And if it weren't necessary to give you to understand both the legal regime and the character of the king, it wouldn't be necessary to the story. Kish had been exiled from Jerusalem in the group that was carried into exile along with King Jeconiah of Judah, which had been driven into exile by King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon. Babylon. He was foster father to Hadassah, that is Esther, his uncle's daughter, for she had neither father nor mother. The maiden was shapely and beautiful, and when her father and mother died, Mordecai adopted her as his own daughter. Here we're setting up Mordecai. Now, it's interesting that Mordecai lives in the fortress Shushan, that is not the Jewish quarter. It will also be mentioned later the town of Shushan where the Jewish quarter was. Mordecai does not get identified as a Jew other than in this parenthetical thing. I mean, this is not an identification to anybody but the reader, right? Mordecai does not get identified as a Jew until after the elevation of Haman. And he will carefully instruct Esther not to reveal who she is, that she is also a Jew. So neither one of these people will reveal who they are until after the elevation of Haman. At this point, they are simply people living in the palace, and we're going to see in a minute that Mordecai does rise to some influence. But not as a Jew, simply as a member of the empire. Nebuchadnezzar is the one that took him into exile. This is the successor empire, so it's 
probably 80 to 100 years after the destruction of Jerusalem under Nebuchadnezzar. Because remember, the, the Babylonian Empire lasted 70 years. It was followed by the Median Empire and the Persian Empire. So we are now a couple of kings into the Medes and the Persians, and now it's just the Persians. So you figure 70 plus a decade or two at least. We have now the two heroes here, Esther and, and Mordecai. Verse 8. When the king's order and edict was proclaimed, and when many girls were assembled in the fortress Shushan under the supervision of Haggai, Esther too was taken into the king's palace under the supervision of Haggai, guardian of the women. This was not a talent contest. In other words, a, a casting call did not go out. Nobody said, all right, anybody that's interested in auditioning to be the queen, come here and sign up. Why? Why was this not an auditioned performance? Why was it not sent out to all the nobles, the king is looking for a wife, if you've got an eligible young woman, send her up here to be interviewed. Maybe he doesn't want a woman who is interested in applying for the job, because such a woman would be ambitious. He has just had experience with an ambitious woman. In other words, he has just had experience with a woman who had her own ambitions. The last thing he wants is another woman who has her own ambitions. So he goes and he plucks them off the street instead of saying, would you be interested? Because someone who would be interested would have a tendency to power. It's, again, important how this selection process goes about because it again tells us something about him. Verse 9. Esther, too, was taken into the king's palace under the supervision of Haggai, guardian of the women. The girl pleased him and won his favor. And he hastened to furnish her with, with her cosmetics and her rations, as well as with the seven maids who were her due from the king's palace. And he treated her and her maids with special kindness in the harem. Esther did not reveal her people or her kindred, for Mordecai had told her not to reveal it. Every single day, Mordecai would walk about in front of the court of the harem to learn how Esther was faring and what was happening to her. My perspective on this is he didn't volunteer Esther. In other words, he is not popping Esther up and saying, you know, take her. He has no choice about whether she's taken, but he then tells her, don't tell anybody who you are, and he keeps checking on her, and I would suspect with the idea of giving her advice. And, and I'm going to come back and talk about some of this in just a minute. 16. Esther was taken to King Ahasuerus in the royal palace in the 10th month, which is the month of uh, Tibet, in the seventh year of his reign. So now remember, we lost Vashti in the third year. We are now in the seventh year. It's four years later. Where Esther falls in this parade of poppets that goes through the king's chambers, I don't know. But I suspect it's, she's not very early in the, in the sequence. So this has been going on for a while. Verse 17. The king loved Esther more than all the other women, and she won his grace and favor more than all the virgins. So he set a royal diadem on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. The king gave a great banquet for all his officials and courtiers, the banquet of Esther. He proclaimed a remission of taxes for the provinces and distributed gifts as befits a king. When the virgins were assembled a second time, Mordecai sat in the palace gate. So now he's sitting in the gates. Okay, that's important. But Esther did not reveal her kindred or her people, as Mordecai had instructed her, for Esther obeyed Mordecai's bidding, as she had done when she was under his tutelage. 
At that time, when Mordecai was sitting in the palace gate, Big Than and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the threshold, became angry and plotted to do away with King Ahasuerus. Mordecai learned of it and told it to Queen Esther, and Esther reported it to the king in Mordecai's name. In Mordecai's name. The matter was investigated and found to be so, and the two were impaled on stakes. This was recorded in the book of the annals at the insistence of the king. So now the story starts to take shape. Mordecai is a man of influence. He sits in the king's gates. He has his ear to the ground. And he is able to pick up rumors and all that kind of stuff, all the stuff that swirls around a palace. He finds some tidbit of information that the king's life is in danger. Now, at this point, he's got three choices. Choice number one is he can resist, which is to say, do everything that he can to harm the king. Choice number two is he can keep his head down and hope nothing happens. Choice number three is he can help the king. He chooses choice number three, but he does it through Esther. But his name is on it, and it gets recorded under his name. And again, this is all part of the intrigue that's going on in this palace. Now, when he does this, he is taking some personal risk, because if the plot succeeds, and these two guys, in fact, take out the king, and there's a new government tomorrow, Mordecai's in big trouble because his report has been written in the annals of the king under Mordecai's name. So this is not without risk. But what he's done in this situation is he has set himself up as someone who is extremely valuable to the king. For those of you who haven't been around power, I've never had much, but I've been around it. The most important thing to a leader is not people who will obey him. People who will obey the leader are a dime a dozen. They will start to want to be rewarded and elevated for their obedience, at which point they become a problem and they're just replaced by other people who will obey. There's no shortage of such people. What is rare is someone who will act in the leader's best interest when the leader is not around and the leader has not given them any instructions. You know, one of the things that I learned in the Army, because it's Army doctrine, is you encourage your subordinates to learn how you think and you expect them to act as you would act wherever they are, even if you're not there. That's a valuable subordinate. Someone who is looking after your interests, not simply following orders. And what Mordecai has set himself up as here, as someone who is looking after the king's interest, and there you know, have been no instructions given to Mordecai, He's not following any orders at all. He has simply seen a situation that says, ha, the king's interest here is to find out what's going on in this and quash this rebellion. I will make that report at some risk to myself. And in that process, he then becomes a very valuable man. So they say this is leadership 101, and Mordecai understands it. So Mordecai lives in a despotism. This king is a despot. But the next king isn't going to be any different. So as long as he lives in Shushan, what he wants to do is make himself as valuable as he can to the existing government. I will suggest that Esther does the same thing. In fact, I know she does because she learned it from her cousin. The first thing she does is she looks at Haggai. 
Now, Haggai doesn't have any personal investment in any of these babes. What Haggai has a personal investment in is that the king has a good time every time one of these girls shows up in his place. That's what he's interested in. That's where his bread is buttered. He's making sure that whenever one of these young virgins hits the king's chamber, the king has a good night. And it's set up so that each of the girls can take whatever she thinks will improve her chances the most. Now, let's say that you're Haggai, and let's say that the king is a very proper, high, highly refined, upper-class guy. And one of the babes that you got picked up off the street because she's really, really beautiful is kind of a tramp. And she says, what I want is a little heart tattooed on my shoulder here, and I want this little filigree tattooed across my backside, and boy, that's just going to really make... And he's going, ugh... <laughs> Because he knows the king is going to be turned off by this, right? What does Esther do? She asks him, what do you recommend that I do? So she is doing exactly the same thing in her own way as Mordecai is doing in his. I am going to be in the king's chamber one of these days. So the question is, how do I position myself to be successful? And the first thing she does is she goes to Haggai. She says, you're the expert. What do I do here? And he just said, ha, finally, we got some, one of these gals with some sense. And he then proceeds to set her up. In, I have no idea what his tastes are, but he proceeds to set her up so that she will be pleasing. Now, the second thing that's going to happen is when she actually does get in with the king, remember he has had this endless string of really good-looking babes that he has used for a night and then just shuffled off, never to be seen again. So the question then is, what's he looking for? I can be one of these babes that's in there for a night and then I get shuffled off into the women's room for the rest of my life. I mean, that's my other choice. Given that this is going to happen, how do I make it work to my advantage? You understand the attitude? And what she does is, A, she studies the king through Haggai figures out what it is the king's looking for, not necessarily sex. In, in fact, a lot of the rabbinic commentaries say that she wasn't actually especially beautiful. The, the rabbinic commentaries say it wasn't that she was so beautiful, it was that she was very wise. And she was able then to go into the king and know and figure out what the king truly was looking for. Because remember, one of the things the king is looking for here is a wife. And clearly this endless sequence of pretty toys is not getting him what he wants. So what she does is she positions herself so that she provides him with whatever it is he wants. And, and the story doesn't say what it is he's looking for. You know, conversation, you know, whatever. But she figures out what it is. And she figures out how to give it to him. And as a result of that, he marries her. So both Mordecai and Esther are doing the same thing. We are captives in an empire. There's nothing we can do about it. So our choices are lay low and hope nothing bad happens, resist, or do our best to aid the emperor. That latter course is what they both take. And because they take that latter course, that lays out the rest of the story. One last thing, and then we'll quit. I would, I would hope to get just a little farther, but we won't. The next chapter is the elevation of Haman. 
And the only thing I want to mention here, two things really. One is Haman comes out of nowhere. If you notice in the listing of all of the advisors and stuff in the first chapter, Haman isn't one of them. You have a list of all the heavy hitters in the empire at this feast, and Haman is not mentioned anywhere. So Haman comes out of nowhere. That's interesting. The other thing is the elevation of Haman is what causes Mordecai to come out as a Jew. Up until now, he is not. So the question that you want to ask yourself is, where did Haman come from? Why is he elevated? And what about his elevation has caused Mordecai to announce that he's a Jew? Because his announcement that he's a Jew is what sets off the whole thing with the letter and you know, the edict and all that kind of stuff. If Mordecai doesn't announce that he's a Jew, none of this happens. He refuses to bow down and he says it's because I'm a Jew and that's what causes the whole thing to happen. And so the question for next week is, what's going on there? Would somebody like to close in prayer?